All right, ladies and gents. Hey, I should say, um, if this is your first time here in the room, um, that pounding that's in the basement is not the pipes about to burst or something. Um, We get the joy of uh, having a Swahili-speaking group meet in the basement. So uh, their worship is four on the floor, baby, um, all day long. So... That's what that is, um, and if that's a distraction, I am, I am sorry, uh, certainly. Nobody said anything to me, I've just thought of it again today, but um, it's worth it to be able to provide a home for our brothers and sisters, and um, to remind us, too, that there are Christians all over the world who have much more threatening noises outside of the rooms that they worship in. Um, I'll mention one of them later, but... Today, uh, we are going to do a talk. I'm going to do a talk. Um, We've been in a series. A series is something that you do like a couple of different topical talks, if you don't know what a series is. But um, we've been in one of those leading up to Christmas called The Songs of Christmas. And wouldn't you know it, it's about the songs of Christmas. Um, We have been looking at some classic Christian or Christmas songs and examining kind of the stories behind them. And uh, I've been sharing a little bit of context, which has just been interesting to get to know who wrote these things, why they wrote them, uh, just a little bit on the front end uh, before we dig into the Bible. So today's song is O Little Town of Bethlehem, the song that we just sung a little bit ago. Um, let me share a little bit, a little bit of the background of that song. Um, it originated in 19, or excuse me, not 19, 1868 as a poem written for a Sunday school of a church um, in Philadelphia by a guy named Philip Brooks. He was a um, rector, which I guess is a pastor. <laughs> um, and uh, the music was written by somebody at his church. The themes of stillness and peace were written into it, um, really 1868, in the aftermath of uh, the American Civil War. This song is written. So it's just fascinating to know when these songs were written and what might have been kind of woven throughout them. Um, so for Philip Brooks, the author of Oh, little town of Bethlehem, he found inspiration uh, for this hymn after the Civil War when he was studying abroad in Europe and Israel. So he kind of wrote the song having visited those places. Um, And while he was traveling there, um, he wrote to the children of his parish church about visiting Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. So he actually wrote this poem for kids in Philadelphia while he was over in Israel, uh, visiting Bethlehem on Christmas Eve um, itself, which I think is pretty cool. It wasn't until a couple years later that he actually wrote the full song, um, but he wrote this song in Bethlehem about that story for his kids uh, that he was responsible to lead, um, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, uh, is in Bethlehem, and it's... It has shaped endless amounts of songs. I didn't Google it, but how many songs are written about Bethlehem, this town, this quiet scene, at least we're told it's quiet, where Jesus was born. They're often in these songs predicted as being quiet and safe and still, and maybe parts of it were, because a baby was born. Um, But that leaves us with the impression that all was well in Jesus' world, that he was born in the nice, safe part of Spectrum Hospital downtown 
with all the right doctors and the epidural, thank goodness, for Mary. Um, But it was not the case. He was not born into peace. He He brought the peace, but he was born into chaos. It couldn't be further from the truth that it was really a quiet, still, safe context that Jesus was born into. Bethlehem, it is true, was a small village. Let me show you a picture uh, when I visited Israel, our tour guide, um, who was sitting in this room, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, pointed out a city that was kind of on the horizon. Uh, you can go to the photo there, Lindsay. Um, the, oh, is it frozen? That's perfect because I have a hundred pictures I'm showing today. Um, but <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking. Dang, that stinks. That's really maybe reset the computer or something. Well, there's a picture of a small place, okay? That's the point I was going to make there. Um, The village of Bethlehem was only home to like around 200 people during Jesus' time. It's a small, maybe twice the amount of people that are gathering here today. Small, little place. So it is accurate, a little town of Bethlehem, to call it that, for sure. But that is not to say that it was on that night and the things that surrounded it a quiet, safe place to have been born. I won't be talking about Bethlehem uh, very much, or at all, actually, um, for the rest of my talk. Instead, we're going to explore the one to whom Jesus was born into the shadow of. His name is Herod the Great. And I'm going to explain, this is what I have in my notes, I'm going to explain who he is with a lot of pictures. Now that is up to... (laughs) For some debate right now, um, but don't feel pressure back there, you guys. I'll make it work if, whatever, if the devil's in our sound machine back there or something. But, um, oh, before I go any further, let me pray. So let me do that, and then we'll keep going. Uh, Jesus, thank you that we uh, are here just as a um, spiritual family, um, not to impress anybody with how we're dressed or Um, Even how good we think we are, we're here because you've come and brought hope to the world. Um, That we are people in desperate need of a Savior, um, like all people before us and after us, and you have come. You were born into the chaos to be that Savior for us in a little town called Bethlehem, but by no means into a safe place. So as I speak, um, if you want the pictures to show up, that's cool. If not, then we'll figure our way out here, but the point will, I'm sure, be communicated all the same that you have come to bring peace to this chaotic world. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Stage design. Hey, there it is, guys. I'm not going to restart my talk. Okay, Um, so we can go to the next slide, maybe, to the Matthew passage. Let's give it up for Lindsay and Ethan back there, everybody. Okay. Now, we're going to read Matthew chapter 2. Remember I told you, if you were here last week, we read this then. Um, We're going to read it again, but we're going to have a different focus, okay? Uh, This is the scene of Jesus' birth, one of the gospel descriptions of it. Uh, Verse 1 in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, that little town, during the time of King Herod, that's the subject for today, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. We talked about them last week, right? And asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I'm going to read that sentence again because you'll see why. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the the people's chief priests, I always get hung up on how to say that, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah was to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. In Bethlehem in Judea, in this little town, 200 people. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out where the exact time the star had appeared. It's loaded for a reason, and you'll see why. That he's like really wanting to investigate this. Here it is. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Hey, go and search for them carefully for the child. As soon as you find them, just come back to me so I too may go worship him. He's lying, by the way. Uh, Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they're like, Okay, let's go on our way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay. Herod, who is this guy? We have no real photo of him, but here's some ancient reproduction of what he looked like. Um, let's talk about him. We're going to talk about him. I'm going to show you pictures, because we can, and you're going to find out a lot about the context of chaos that Jesus was born into, okay? So track with me, because we're going like four different places. Welcome to Israel, everybody. Um, Herod originally gained his wealth by making a sort of like cologne that he claimed was the world's most powerful aphrodisiac. Now, for those of you who don't know what aphrodisiac is, nudge the person next to you and ask them, and they can explain. Um, cue, wait, cue the like Bior commercial. You know the ones that happen during football games where you're like, what the heck is this? Oh, it's a cologne commercial. You're like, why is everybody wet? They're on a boat? I don't even get it. It's all black and white. Um, the Bior commercials. He, he is the guy that makes that stuff, right, in their time. Um, so he would produce this fragrance for all of the area, and he also owned all of the trees, um, so the supply and the demand of the trees that were the main component that this cologne fragrance would come from. So he is the original gangster, the OG of business in Israel. He knew how to start a business, find a need, make people think that they really need it, (laughs) for the reasons I just said earlier, um, to make a dollar. He was a very shrewd business person. He had a great understanding of the global trade routes that were in the area and took advantage of the global economy that passed right before him on what's called the VMRS. Um, So he became rich. He became a very wealthy person, and the way he built that wealth was... Bior. <laughs> he was uh, also a pretty handsome fella. They say that he had the physical body of an Ol- Olympic athlete, so he looked very different than me, um, which probably helped with the sales of his fragrance. Bior. It's the last time I'm going to say it. I don't even know if Bior is the right phrase, but um, Herod loved nice stuff. Um, anything that made him happy, he took. 
um, he married into a family, uh, Jewish family, in order to have Jewish connections. Uh, so he had an inroad into the Jewish religious community, although Herod himself, as you'll see, was not a godly man. He was a self-made man who built a business empire, and eventually his business, business success afforded him uh, political opportunity. So Herod was sort of, um, when he gained his political power, was sort of like the client king for the Roman Empire to Israel. So Rome was this um, dominant empire in the whole world at that time, most of the whole world at that time. Um, and then they employed his services with his knowledge of uh, the Jewish community and inroads into them to be their king. He was the king of the Jews, uh, which is interesting in Jesus' crucifixion story that that's the title the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus with. Um, Fascinating. So because of his deep understanding of Israel and his proximity to the Jews, you all with me? Um, He was a great fit, according to Rome, to rule over the Jews, to keep them sort of contained and in order. They can do their religious thing, just keep them there, keep them under control. So upon becoming king of Israel, Herod, which occurred, uh, what is it, like 40, 37 B.C., he ruled for like 35, 37 years. Uh, For about 30 years before Jesus was born, he was the king of um, Israel. So he had two responsibilities. Um, The one was the mantra of law and order, uh, wherein if uh, he would punish, imprison, or kill anyone who dared to oppose him or Caesar. So it was his job to, like, enforce that. Um, Which brings up the uh, first place that I want us to visit today, which is called Masada. I think we have photos. I know we do. I put them in there. There we go. So uh, it is, you can't see the photo very well, but the, the picture on the left, um, if you look beyond it, the Dead Sea is right behind it. Um, and the cliffs rise up from the Dead Sea up to the very top, the shelf up there of Masada, um, 1,300 feet. Um, and he, bu- he built several, this is a military fortress. Herod built several military fortresses all around uh, Israel um, in order to keep his thumb on the Jews. And this one uh, was, I think, probably the most impressive. You can see on the right side of, of the pictures up there, that's kind of the plateau up there. It, when you see pictures like this, you can never really tell the scale, you know? Like, how big is that? But when we were up there, I'm like, it's, it's huge. So it's, it's 1,800 feet by, like, 900 feet. It's the size of, like, six football fields. It's It's big. It's like a third of a mile long. So I, it, it's, it's from us. If you stand on the sidewalk and you look towards two guys brewing, it's that long. It's, it's that long is, is the top of this uh, plateau up there. So this uh, Masada had walls uh, surrounding it. So this is this military fortress, and it had five palaces in it, um, all in, uh, with casemate walls, 37 towers, They had food and weapons storage rooms that were built at the site along with cisterns, which is things that they stored water in, that provided enough water, should they need it, for 10,000 soldiers. So a picture doesn't say much, but they have enough water up there to to sustain 10,000 soldiers. I forget how much length of time it was, but they had private gardens up there, a swimming pool, three bathhouses in the desert. 
All of this ensured that Herod, this king, uh, and his inner circle would have enjoy the good life um, in the heart of the desert because Herod liked Nike stuff a lot. So these fortresses, they were lavish too. Let me show you another picture from at Masada. Uh, next, if you don't mind. Um, on the left, all of the walls um, in the uh, fortress at Masada are made out of very expensive plaster. It's so great. I mean, it looks like as beautiful of a tile thing as you'd see today. That's the best of language as I can speak to it. All of his palaces were like this, fancy and expensive. Each room had uh, mosaic floors on the right side there, which is not that impressive until you see it. These are fine detail floors that uh, for this one in this picture, it would have taken a single mason four years to one person to take four years to do that room. It's, it's fascinating. You, you can't help but marvel at it. It is beautiful. And so he would build these things. And that place specifically was the perfect place to let his dominance be known to all the people surrounding that area and many other areas all over Israel. You can't help but be overwhelmed with the power of this man. And he used this power and vanity to subjugate people. Let me read you a quote by a historian called Josephus. I'll read a couple quotes from him today. It says, Since Herod was involved in expenses greater than his means, so he went into debt, he was compelled to be harsh towards his subject. For the great number of things on which he spent money as gifts to some caused him to be the source of harm to those from whom he took his revenues. He had reduced the entire people, to helpless poverty. The king of the Jews is squishing, uh, oppressing this group of people for his own glory. He was good to people on the inside that he liked to party with or whom he needed to gain a certain kind of power from, but brutal to the people at the bottom. This is the king of the Jews. This is the one mentioned in that story. This is the surrounding of that place. Uh, the next place I want to bring you. Now remember, uh, it's the temple in Jerusalem. Um, Herod was very sly, so he maneuvered himself to win over the Jewish people. Because how are you going to get them to do all of that work for you and stay under your thumb unless you do something that motivates them to listen to you? So uh, one of his projects that's one of the biggest, most impressive, but certainly to the Jewish people the most important a project that kept them subject to him was rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, using their money to do it. Um, his efforts led the, to building the, rebuilding the temple, uh, which was the largest, most magnificent temple in the ancient world. These, I don't have the, the data in front of me, but you've heard in previous sermons, these stones, these massive stones... They would have to chisel these things two miles away so that no chiseling could be heard from the temple. Like, it took so much time and so much effort for this to be built. But Herod was doing it as a way to gain the allegiance or to keep the Jews at bay. It's a power move. He also built several other temples throughout Israel to honor um, the so-called divine Caesar Augustus. But the temple in Jerusalem... Uh, was marveled and displayed the work of his brilliant mind. 
Um, Josephus, again, says this, that the same historian. Um, In the 15th year of his reign, Herod restored the temple, and by erecting new foundation walls, he enlarged the surrounding area to double its former extent. He's doubling the size of it. The expenditure devoted to this work was incalculable. Its magnificence never surpassed. He restored at a lavish cost in a style no way inferior to that of a palace and called it Antonia in honor of Antony, which was the Caesar at the time. Matter of fact, in the top corner up there, you see the kind of four pillars. Um, That's called the Antonia Fortress. That is where Roman soldiers uh, would house themselves in order to keep an eye even on the temple worship of God's people. His buildings... Uh, of this new glorious temple kept the Jews just calm enough to stay subject to him. Herod knew this. He's an OG. Even the disciples of Jesus were drawn into the grandness of this. I think it's cool to just show you. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus' disciples said this. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, so they're leaving that temple. Uh, Go to the, if you don't mind, if that scripture's up there. I think it is. Are we frozen again? Oh, nice, there it is. Um, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. So even the followers of Jesus are like, Hey, this is pretty impressive, right? This is what we've kind of been waiting for, right? The temple to be restored. Herod had his thumb on the Jews. I won't read you Jesus' correction of what they said. You can read that. Mark 13, spark your curiosity. Awesome what Jesus says. Okay, uh, so when they, Herod had his thumb on the Jews, and when he would see any signs of upheaval or disobedience to his rule, he had to show uh, Rome, the ones that hired him to rule this area, that he had things under control. Which brings me to a mountain near the Sea of Galilee called Arbel. We can go to that picture. Um, on the left, that's the Sea of Galilee, is right there. Jesus spent uh, 70% of this, his time around the, that lake. Um, but Arbel is that mountain up there. And it is said that thousands of Jews were set on fire um, by Romans who were fleeing from Herod inside of these caves. And soldiers, those caves right there on the right side, Soldiers under Herod's command um, would shoot flaming arrows into those caves for the people that were hiding out for their lives. Um, And then soldiers would be lowered from the top of the cliff that you can see, kind of the plateau up there, um, in a basket on a rope. um, And they would come down with sharp hooks. And so people would be shot with flaming arrows. Then the soldiers would come down just to the opening of it go in with uh, sharp hooks and pull out the people and yank them off the cliffs to their deaths. That is brutal. Let me read you another quote from Josephus. Herod set out on a campaign against the bandits in the caves, Arbel. These caves... Opening on to the mountain precipices were inaccessible from were inaccessible from any quarter except by some torturous and extremely narrow paths leading up to them. I've walked them. It would be hard to keep people out of them. Although the king had recourse 
to a most hazardous scheme. In other words, he had a plan. By means of ropes, he lowered the most stalwart of his men in cradles and gave them access to the cavern mouths. These then massacred the Jewish rebels and their families, hurling, them, hurling in firebrands upon those who resisted. This is the guy that we read in Matthew 2. Herod was a power-hungry, violent, greedy, extremely vain king. There are actually many other impressive architectural works that Herod did to build a kingdom for himself. But I only want to share one more with you. This uh, next one is on the left is a man-made mountain called the Herodium. You, you heard me correctly. It's a, literally a man-made mountain. He had uh, slaves take rocks bucket by bucket, rocks and dirt bucket by bucket from the surrounding area to construct a mountain of his own. This process took years, raising from one bucketful at a time. And of course, this mountain too uh, had all the lavish trimmings of the other places. The picture on the right there, um, I took that picture. That pool is 200 feet by 150 feet. And it was nine feet deep in the desert. <laughs> For scale, that's like a, a oil truck up to the top right. It's huge. He had that much water taken so that he could party, taken by slaves, so he could party in the middle of the desert. He actually wanted that place, the Herodium, uh, his mountain, which stood high, intentionally higher than all the other mountains in the area to prove a point that he is the highest, he is the king of the Jews. Um, it's said that he wanted this to be his tomb, um, and that at his death, he wished, he no, demanded, it didn't actually end up happening, but he wanted to have a thousand Pharisees crucified and weeping and wailing at his funeral. That, ne that never happened, but that's what he wanted. And they actually believe, although he died in a different city, that he, his remains are in that mountain. That is the highest mountain in all of Judea as a way to say he is the most powerful king, worthy of uh, submission and allegiance. And when in doubt, as I've already said, Herod will crush you if you try and give your allegiance to anything else other than he or Caesar. Do you remember Bethlehem just a few moments ago? Let me show you that picture again. There it is. That's not actually Bethlehem, but it's what it would have looked like, about the size, just that little area in the middle. 200 people are so. A little town of Bethlehem. At the sunrise, you can go to the next picture, Lindsay. Um, at sunrise, the Herodium, the man-made mountain that I just showed you, literally casts its shadow the direction of Bethlehem. This man-made, vain, 
structure built by a person who wants to glorify themselves at any means necessary casts its shadow at the rising sun on the city, the village that Jesus was born into. Jesus was born in the shadow of a brutal ruler named Herod, literally and figuratively. This Herod was terrified that he would lose his power. So when he finds out that there's this king of the Jews that's about to be born, he freaks out a little bit. And we've already read some of the things he does when he freaks out. It's no wonder that Herod would be worried. But Jesus was born into that context, into that chaos. And where was he born? In a sheep's cave. with years of sheep poop on the ground and charred ceilings from the flames of shepherds who used those caves. He was born and he was put into something that animals eat out of. The king of the universe, the one who actually has all the power at his disposal, chose to be born there. He didn't insist that he have the highest mountain. He actually brought himself to the lowest valley. <laughs> Jesus was placed into, a, into poor and humble circumstances under the thumb of a ruler who oppressed, enslaved, mistreated, abused, and killed people. Herod is representative in this story of a pattern in our world. It's a pattern of evil that's fueled by a thing called sin. I want to show you one more picture. You can put that up there, Lindsay. This is um, something that I came across um, on Facebook. Um, It's from a pastor in Bethlehem right now, Christian pastor in Bethlehem, that he shared just a few days ago. Now, many of you know that there's actually a war happening there right now. Um, And as always, I'm not claiming to fully understand all of the complexities of these things. Um, But this photo struck me as I'm going to teach you about Bethlehem and the shadow of power that Jesus was born into. This Christian pastor placed Jesus in in a nativity scene, but not in a manger, but in a pile of rubble. (laughs) Not out of disrespect for Jesus, but out of an accurate description of Jesus joining in our suffering. He did this as a way to show that Jesus identifies with our suffering and out of solidarity for his but our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of Israel who are suffering under the reality of war right now. The sounds of thumping they hear are not bass drums. It's things that cause buildings to collapse. 
Our world still smells like the stench of Herod. And I'm not claiming to know what it's going to take to end it either, other than God coming and living among us and showing us a different way. My friends, Jesus came to earth to identify with our suffering and to make a way for true peace on earth. And it is by the way of love. The greatest way that Jesus showed us love is to come to earth and lay down his life for us. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because Jesus gave his life up that he didn't have the power to crush like Herod did. Do you ever watch a storm and think, man, that's powerful. It's just one storm in one small part of the world to which God created with his word. (laughs) When Peter cut a soldier's ear off before Jesus was taken to be crucified, he says, that's not my way. If I wanted to destroy these people, I could bring a legion of a thousand angels and destroy them in a minute, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm here to save and love the world back to myself. Jesus came to die for our sins for our ways, not just this ancient character, but our ways that still tend to drift in the direction of building our own kingdoms like a guy named Herod. Jesus came to give us eternal life But he also requires us to follow him in the way of love and follow him in the way of the cross, too. The way of Jesus is to love your enemy. The way of Jesus is to bless those who persecute you. The way of Jesus is to overcome evil with good. Jesus was born into chaos. Surrounded by war and violence. And he brought peace on earth that the angel said would be good news that brings great joy to all the world. And he gave us a practice that we get to celebrate, we get to remember as a way to identify with him in his suffering, and to know that he has overcome the grave. One of Jesus' earlier followers put it this way, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, ripped and torn, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The story doesn't end with death. Jesus overcame the grave. And maybe today we're joining in solidarity to Christian brothers and sisters, to anybody around the world who's suffering. 
in belief that by the crushing of Jesus' body and the resurrection of his body, we have hope that the fist won't rule out, but the love and sacrifice of Jesus through us will. So I'm going to pray. And then, you know, we did this last time, and I like it. If you could take the bread, and if you need gluten-free option, we have that up there too. Take it back to your seat. Dip it, put it in your hand, and then go back to your seat. And when everybody's been through, we'll take it at the same time. Okay? So let me pray, and then you guys can rise up and come receive this gift. Uh, Jesus, thank you for coming here to earth into our violent and chaotic and crazy and broken and evil world where we get to read stories like this that are ancient but not so ancient because they feel all too familiar of the injustices that people suffer around the world every day. And it honestly is hard for me sometimes to get my mind around the reality that you claim to be bigger than that that you actually claim to have life in your hands, that you claim as the risen Lord that you will return to make all things new. I believe that news, Lord, but expand our view today that even in the face of the most evil things in this world, you are the resurrected king. You are the one that makes the darkness tremble. You are the light. So, Lord, we take this Uh, symbol as a way to remind our souls and remind our bodies that death doesn't win. You do. In Jesus' name.